Good morning, everybody. It's Monday, June 7th, 2021. I'm Herb Morgan, Senior Managing Director and Chief Investment Officer here at Efficient Market Advisors. We are a business of Cantor Fitzgerald Investment Advisors. This is our weekly economic and market commentary. This economic market uh, economic and market commentary can also be heard as a podcast. The name of the podcast is Slaying Bulls and Bears making the complex and complicated simple and sensible. It's available in all the major podcast formats. The presentation you're about to see and hear is being delivered to you. It is meant to be used by both financial advisors and investors, each of whom, are, of course, are expected to make their own investment decisions. Nothing contained in the presentation should be treated as investment advice. There are no recommendations for the purchase or sale of any securities. This is purely for informational purposes. We had a positive week in both equities and fixed income markets last week. S&P 500 was up almost two thirds of a percent, keeping those double digit gains for the year of 13%, mid cap more so at 19 and small cap just having just a major year. It's, we're not even halfway through the year and small cap stocks are up 24%. No doubt a lot of this movement is fueled by the reopening, the economic recovery, the support of fiscal stimulus, um, debt financed fiscal stimulus, which carries its own level of risks, and of course, monetary stimulus, large amounts of monetary stimulus from the US Federal Reserve. That's finding its way into foreign markets, although their economic recovery is not as good as ours or strong as ours, we are seeing stock markets uh, participate in this rally. They lag the U.S. quite a bit. The EFI index is up 11.5. Emerging markets lagging the most, up about 7.8%. It's an interesting bit of, I think, essentially tough news for some of the emerging markets over the weekend. As the group of seven, the world's seven largest economies, of which the U.S. is the biggest, announced an agreement to sort of try to impose a 15% minimum corporate tax. Uh, the idea for that is that they would stop competing for the location and headquarters of companies by having lower corporate tax rates. And this, uh, this is a collusion of sorts by the world's seven largest economies. They're going to seek to get that uh, spread to the next, say the G20, and then to other countries perhaps beyond that. So despite all the fears of inflation, bond, bond prices are holding very steady. The aggregate bond index was up an eighth of a percent over the weekend. The year-to-date year decline is only a little more than 2%. Now, the longer the maturity, the bigger the move up and the bigger the move down uh, with interest rates. So as interest rates have come up a little this year, the longer maturity treasury index is down about 11%, about 11%. The economic data last week was across the board good, if not excellent. But the one that mattered the most was the jobs report was good, not excellent, which was actually excellent news for investors. And I'll explain that as we move on. But let's start with the PMIs. We got manufacturing from both Marquette and ISM. The Marquette manufacturing PMI rose to 62.1, a little ahead of expectations. This is a newer series. It's only been around since 2007 but it had the highest reading in its history. That includes the recovery period coming out of the 08 global financial crisis. New orders at 65.6, also the highest reading. It's the 11th consecutive month of expansion since the contraction months 
that occurred during the global economic shutdown. On the negative side, input prices, this is an inflationary pressure, highest reading since July of 2008. Looking at the sister, or maybe the distant sister <laughs> reading, ISM manufacturing, a competitor reading, I should say, that rose to 61.2. New orders there up to 67. Employment surprisingly fell a little bit. It's just barely above the expansion line. Backlog of orders, however, rose significantly to 71, suggesting that this slowdown in hiring wasn't due to uh, demand, it was more due to the, that friction and that transition of getting workers back to work when the unemployment benefits at the state plus federal now are very attractive to remain home because you don't incur those normal costs of working such as childcare, transportation, you know, lunch on the road, that kind of thing. Uh, but price here, prices have started to drop, remaining elevated, but dropping, the price is paid. So the rate of increase is actually, actually decelerated there. So manufacturing is about 15% of the US economy. The service sector, which was the hardest hit by the pandemic shutdowns, is about 85% of the US economy. And here, the Marquette number rose to 70.4, also the highest reading in the history of the series. I think that's unlikely to repeat or even go higher next month, but you just never know. 10 months of expansion here, prices charged rose to the highest level since the series began. That reflects profitability. It also reflects inflationary pressures. And there again, employment fell, same thing. Hard to get people back to work. And in order to do so, having to offer incentives or even higher wages, and that can be put, that can put some pressure on margins as we go forward. Uh, similarly, the competing reading from ISM, that's ISM services or non-manufacturing, that uh, rose uh, to 64, beating expectations. That's the fastest rate of expansion on record since this series began, which was 24 years ago, 1997. A little bit of a dip again in employment. And then, of course, we saw that all reflected in the Bureau of Labor Statistics Jobs Report, which I'll get to in a minute. Uh, and here, in some cases, we're even hearing businesses in this services sector say, we're not, we just can't reopen yet because we don't have enough employees. We can't get them back quickly enough. I spoke to uh, a friend who owns a number of restaurants here in San Diego County, and they're just opening the restaurants one by one. They want to open them all, but they can't get enough employees. Similarly, uh, I went to place to have breakfast over the weekend at a golf course, and uh, I wanted to have breakfast before I played golf, and they said, we can't open the kitchen because we can't get employees. Uh, it back. So they're really, this is real and it's, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen on labor market in my time in the economy, uh, but it is truly happening. This labor shortage, uh, despite a lot of people still claiming unemployment, you know, President Biden mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if you're offered a bona fide job, you have to take it and you have to come legally come off of the assistance. But unfortunately, that's just not happening in many cases. Very difficult thing to prove. Uh, the survey comes, yes, I'm looking for a job. Because if you say you're not looking for a job, then you're really not eligible for the benefits. So um, it's a bit of a mousetrap game here, but uh, we need to obviously get people back to work. Automobile sales annualized in May at a, at a still very high rate. 
of 17 million. That's down from the 18 and a half million in April and a little bit below expectations. So now we get into the big news last week, which is the um, which is the employment situation, starting with the weekly claims for unemployment. The rate of deceleration here is encouraging. It is starting to steepen that descent. The initial weekly claims fell to 385,000. You've heard me say a million times, you have to have a three handle in the front to be, to be really making progress. It's a high three handle. We are really making progress, but it's very slow progress. Uh, remember, before the shutdown, this weekly number was in the twos, and not only that, it was in the low twos. So uh, we're still getting layoffs. So this has nothing to do with people accepting jobs or getting hired. We're still getting weekly layoffs at a, at a rate that's a little higher uh, than I think we'd like to see. Uh, ADP Employment Report, that's the private sector company, ADP, Automated Data Processing. They do payroll and 401k business, et cetera. They say that the economy added about 978,000, which was a huge blowout above the estimate of 650,000. Um, they did revise April down a little bit from 740 to 650. And as you would expect, leisure and hospitality service sector jobs, jobs were where the big ads were as we reopen the economy, reopen restaurants uh, and other sort of, you know, uh, consumer facing oriented movie theaters, that kind of thing, uh, reopening. So that was a really, really good report. But then the May jobs report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which is part of the Department of Labor, said, uh, not so fast. We had an estimate of 675. It came in at 559. Private payrolls rose for 92. Uh, that was, you know, was progress on the prior month, manufacturing, et cetera, and unemployment rate dropped, but we we're still not seeing the participation rate go higher. So that is normally in a recession when the participation rate's low, that's people giving up on finding work and just taking themselves out. Here it's it really is that trade-off between work and not work, that marginal benefit uh, by many is seen as so, so small that there's not that incentive to come back. And those marginal benefits from the Fed really don't roll off until September, although over the weekend we heard news that several states are taking uh, unilateral action to try to remove some of that disincentive for work. So that could get things picking up here in terms of the return to work. Uh, in the in the summer months rather than having to wait till the fall uh, when we see that. Also within that labor report, we get the average hourly earnings report. And while you see this line going down, it doesn't mean that average hourly earnings are going down. This is a percentage change from a year ago. And the percentage increase, you know, very high percentage increase, this is all pre-COVID pandemic here, but this was one of the things that I was so proud about for our country was during that growth period with weekly claims down in the 200,000, we were getting real wages, that's wages after inflation, average hourly earnings, were growing at the greatest clip in history, which meant that we were expanding the economy, but we were doing it across the socioeconomic spectrum. Yes, the rich were getting richer with profits and with stock prices and rising asset prices, but labor was getting real increases in purchasing power more gasoline, more medical care, more food, more services, more vacation, more education. All of those things were happening back then. 
2019, 2018, et cetera. And you're still getting increases, but they're just barely above the zero line now. Well, average hourly earnings did go back to about 2% year over year, real after inflation. That's good. It's just not as good as five or six or seven or 8%. So that was a positive, seen as a positive in the market yesterday. Factory, or last, last week, factory orders fell six tenths of a percent. They've been on a big, big run here. Normally it's a volatile series. It went back to being a volatile series with a slight drop. Nothing to see here. Nothing really to, uh, I guess, to worry about. Um, so the question becomes, are we seeing signs that this inflation surge is transitory? Because that's the issue. And I think it's the biggest question I get on a daily basis from financial advisors and from investor clients is, are we going into this inflationary bubble? Uh, we're hearing crazy stories about real estate uh, sales, prices, home prices, et cetera. We're seeing this graph. This is the one-year break-even inflation rate. This is what the markets are predicting inflation will be, the CPI, if you will, over the next 12 months. And it continues to rise, and it's at about 340. But if it were not transitory, if you then went out and looked at, say, the inflation swaps or the break-evens for five years or for 10 years, you would see them continuing to rise as well. And while they have risen in recent months, uh, in really years, this goes back to the beginning of January 20. January 2020, the 10-year inflation swap was down in this range here of about 1.5%. Now it's up to about 2.5%. That's closer to the Fed's target of 2% and making it transitory. And it's really begun to roll over here since the beginning of May. So perhaps, just perhaps, the Federal Reserve uh, and all the statements we've seen are more accurate than we think when you dig deep into the inflation data it does seem to be centered in some of the what i would call the reopening sectors of the economy the airlines the rental cars the hotels uh, the restaurants etc and as supply comes back online and as bottlenecks get unclogged in the manufacturing chain it's very very possible that uh, the fed may may actually hit the nail right on the head and get this right. We're just starting to see more and more information to that effect now, as in this case, the 10-year US dollar inflation swap has begun to roll over a little bit. Also, taking a look here, this is the, co the commodity lumber. Uh, we, this has been the poster child for this inflation scare that we've had, obviously from $400 to $1,600, $1,700 was pretty massive. This morning, as I was driving into work, and I was listening to CNBC, they mentioned that the, the lumber futures today are limit down. I talked to you about the backwardation that exists in the commodity markets a couple of week, uh, last week, where the future contracts months are even lower than the front month. But even the front month, um, which is down 27%, you can see 27% from the peak. Sure, it's got a long way to go. But this trend seems to have stopped this big spiky trend here. And it's pretty, it seems to me we'll be in the sub thousand dollar range, if not lower within a year. So that's really no longer a big inflationary pressure. But I think the news that was surprising to economic and market participants over the weekend was this big G7 agreement that was reached where the leaders of the seven largest economies, and in our case, our representative, 
is the Secretary of the Treasury in this case, and it was Janet Yellen. We know her for when she used to be the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, she what she uh, signed on to and agreed with the other members of the G7, used to be the G8, uh, that the global minimum corporate tax rate should be 15%. In other words, none of the, the countries uh, will, under this agreement or treaty, lower or have a corporate tax rate below 15%, and uh, which is essentially price fixing. It's like as if, um, you know, uh, Ford and Chevy said, we just won't sell a car for less than $25,000. That would be illegal and it would be punishable by imprisonment. But because countries have been competing to attract capital and to attract jobs, one of the ways they do that is by lowering the corporate tax rate. It's a way for poor countries to stop being poor. And it has been for a very, very long time. But the U.S. is a rich country and the other G7 countries are also rich. And so what we're saying is, no, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to compete amongst each other for capital. So they, um, they also, in this agreement, said they want to impose tax on massive multinational corporations with particularly companies, American companies like Amazon, Facebook, and Google, to pay taxes to countries where perhaps their goods or services are used. You can open up a Facebook account in England, but it's an American company making American profits. And so our own Treasury Secretary is signing on to have our own companies perhaps pay tax to other countries regardless of whether there's a physical presence in that country at all. But what this really does is it seeks to put the screws to the smaller developing nations and keep them smaller and keep them underdeveloped. It's really horrible economic policy for growth. It's really anti-capitalist. It's very much anti-freedom and it keeps the poor poor. But our treasury secretary said that this provides tremendous momentum that would end the race to the bottom in corporate taxation. And if, and only if, of course, they can get everybody else to sort of sign on and then use other diplomatic means to pressure countries like, say, Singapore, which has been a, a, tax, a low tax haven. Ireland has been a low tax haven. It does exempt some smaller companies, but uh, still what this really, really does is, is it solidifies uh, the U.S.'s position um, and, and they're obviously talking, it could pave the way for more agreement, bring in the G20 and then go further. Uh, but at the same time, it calls for the removal of some digital service taxes. So the whole thing is very early going. There's going to be strong resistance, I think, in the American Congress. It ties into the desire to raise the corporate tax rate in the U.S. from 21 to 28, which has lost tremendous momentum in the last couple of weeks on the legislative side of things. We will be keeping an eye on this. We think this is important potentially for investors. The, this week, in terms of economic data, consumer credit, trade deficit, the jolts or jobs opening report, small business optimism, wholesale inventories, jobless claims, CPI, that's probably the big one for the week. Uh, we've also got, uh, you know, coming up on Jackson Hole this summer, Fed meeting, Humphrey Hawkins testimony this summer. It's going to be a quiet week. We're, we're not in earnings season, there's just not a whole lot uh, going on, uh, really, and probably until the first and second week of July when we get into earnings season. So that's what's going on. Don't forget to subscribe to uh, this either via email 
so you get the slides, or if you just like to listen to uh, my voice uh, without the slides, you can get us this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, you name it. As always, thank you very much for tuning in. We look forward to chatting with you again next week.